just in case I need it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, uh, the privilege that you give us to even meet together. We also thank you, Lord, for bringing us back together uh, in where we originally were launched after a multi-year battle with a worldwide plague. Lord, you have been so gracious. You kept us together as a church. Uh, many will be coming in from our snowbird community over the next month, and Lord, we are excited about having them back, give them safe travels. But most of all, this morning, Lord, what we're asking is that you, were in, you would superintend this uh, parsing of your word, which is, is challenging, Lord. And uh, we want to we get to the heart of your teaching, Jesus. We really do. Be with us this morning. Bless those who are here and those who are online. Lord, thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't think there's a chance that I would be standing here without Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Many of you know the story. I will save the majority of it for next week. But um, some, Lord and I were coming up on our 30th anniversary. And very soon after we got married, I was just like, I am not leaving the house until you speak to me and tell me what you want me to do. If I'm supposed to be following you, how do I follow you without knowing what to do or where to go or what to do with my life? And over a long period of time, multiple months, uh, many of you know I heard Luke 14, 23 is your life verse. I didn't have a Bible with me. I went scurrying to try to find a Bible and wondering, and many of you know this story. And out of that came a, a life calling and something that I have lived into for over two decades now. Uh, I take that very seriously. I take the fact that God speaks to us and gives us direction incredibly seriously. In fact, we're either under the law, which we're trying to we're look at this morning, trying to figure out what the law tells us not to do, or we live this dynamic, massively supernatural, exciting journey, faith journey with a living God. That's kind of scary. It's kind of strange. It sounds different if you don't understand that. But as I read the Bible, that's pretty much the story of everybody who walked in the Bible, starting with the first real patriarch, which was Abram become Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. And he didn't have much more than that. He just lived out his faith. And he built these little altars along the way to commemorate what God was doing, not what he was doing. He just brought faith to the party. And, and yet we get this picture that God had a very specific plan for Abram who would become, well, in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Jesus was part of the downline of Abram become Abraham. So it's... It's a significant chapter for me. It doesn't necessarily have to be for you uh, in terms of your life verse, but I get excited when we finally finished Luke 13 and now moved into Luke 14. And this morning what we're going to look at is we're going to look at some of the worldviews or some of the attitudes that we must have before we can get into the parable that really changed my life. And as a, re as a result of that, changed Laura's life, changed those near to me, changed my kids, and my grandkids and generations in some way have been changed by this chapter, at least to the point that I have influence in anybody else's lives. And to some degree, if you're a recipient of Church at the Red Door here, you too have been, uh, you, you derived a benefit of sorts from Luke chapter 14. Does that make sense? All right, so let's start. Luke chapter 14, verse 1, verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, remember we saw this in 
in Luke chapter 7, he went into the home of one of the Pharisees and a woman who was a sinner. We don't know that it was sexual sin. We just know that she was a sinner. She was really good at it. She was committed. She was a committed sinner is essentially what that means. And she practiced it pretty regularly. And yet she found this time when he was with these Pharisees and she fell at his feet, if you'll remember Luke chapter 7, began to be in anguish. I'm talking wailing, if you go back into the Greek. She was really wailing and weeping, and, and she, poured, she poured a costly perfume all over his feet, and they were indignant about it, and we get something similar. Notice Jesus didn't just stop. That wasn't the last Pharisee's house that he ever went into. He went back to another Pharisee's home, a leader of the Pharisees. That's important for me to understand because Jesus was willing to go right into the cauldron because he loved the Pharisees. And he loved this leader of the Pharisees, even knowing the hardness of their heart. And he went on the Sabbath uh, to eat bread, and they were watching him closely. By the way, the word watching here is kind of an insidious nature to this type of watching, uh, to really be punctilious about the law. They were watching, they were assiduous in what they were doing, they were really paying attention, trying to catch him so that they could accuse him. That's what that word watching in the Greek really means there, closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, I don't know if you know what dropsy is. It actually means just watery. Uh, My condition, in fact, when I was thinking about coming back here today, I had actually some negative vibes coming here. And you would say, why? Because much of my time here with you in the first number of years, remember when they would wheel me up in a wheelchair or I'd come up on crutches and all this? It was... It was a form of edema that actually finished that. It was CRPS. I won't go into that. But it was kind of like dropsy, a swelling. Some of you may have suffered from this, uh, where you get a lot of swelling around a joint or part of your body, and sometimes legs can swell to twice their size. It's a pretty, it's a pretty difficult situation. It really, it really can render you pretty much unable in, to even walk if it's in one of the lower extremities. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him, and he healed him and sent him away. But he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Now, First of all, first worldview that has to change before we can get into the parable that I want to talk about next week, which changed my life. First, number one, a worldview that is predicated on one simple foundation. There is good religion and there is bad religion. And you want to be part of good religion. Good religion is a, the simplicity of walking out a faith journey with the creator of you. Your creator has a passion. You were created with purpose and intent. And until you get that, bad religion is a good old college try working very diligently to try to make amends with God. You're not, it's not that you don't believe in God, but your access is derived through your efforts. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. And it can get 
profoundly disturbing. In fact, you can look over the last 2,000 years from the time of Jesus, and not just other religions, but, and I've talked about this at length, but even the, uh, the, the, under the guise of Christianity, and you can look and you can say, horror show, horror show, horror show, that's a disaster. I can't believe they would do that. And most of it comes from a sense of legalism, which is, leads to pride and a lack of humility, which is going to be our second foundation that Jesus really addresses. What was so difficult, if you'll remember in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was in a situation where they were accusing him because of Matthew. He had chosen a tax collector, and he goes, I can't believe this guy is eating with tax collectors and, and sinners. I mean, I can understand sinners, but tax collectors, I agree. I, that's a difficult thing to imagine. <laughs> Sorry if you had a career in the IRS, but, you know, tax, anybody but tax collectors and sinners. Obviously, it was not just their IRS. It was a, these were the prodigals, if you will, of Israel, there were other Jewish people who were kind of turned and were complicit with the Romans to unfairly tax their people. So that's a little bit different than IRS. I'm kind of kidding on that. Kind of. So, uh, but Matthew chapter 9, he says, so, so you're, you're out there eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus said, I want you to go and learn, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where he, where God says, I desire mercy, or in some translations, compassion. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So you're telling me the Christian life has no sacrifice? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, ultimately, I want everything to be driven by compassion. And he didn't say that in this context, but every time he was confronted with, you know, being with the impure things... Now, remember, if we're going to look at Luke 14, 23, which is an invitation to everyone, we've got to get over this good religion, bad religion, and we stay far away from those people that we disagree with. You, we draw lines, and, and our, let me, I've got to tell you, I, and we, we know this, we, social media and the media and everything, it's so divisive, and if you've got to come, to, I guess you've got to come down on one side, and that means everybody on the other side is your enemy, whether it's politically, whether it's religiously, whether it's... It, we divide on so many things, and some things, yes, we're divided on these things. Some are truth and some are not truth, but to, to despise and not to engage those people that are on the other side of whatever issue you may deem to be important or that you believe that you've, de that you've derived from the Scripture, then they are the enemy and uh, they are the enemy and you need to battle them for all time. And Jesus says, look, I'm not into your sacrifice, your religious sacrifice, I'm really into this. I'm into, I'm into mercy and compassion. So he sets an example for us. Live into my teaching. Do what I do. First, first of all, he shows me something. Go to where the Pharisees are. Don't just get in your holy huddles. Go to where the Pharisees are. Go to where the sinners are. Go to where the tax collectors are. Go to where the golf pros are. Go to where the pickleballers are. Go, to, go, go wherever I send well, no, In fact, let me just say, go wherever I send you. And don't be surprised if I send you in places that other people are going to deem bad religion. No, it's good religion because you're listening to my voice. They could make no reply to this. What do we do? We know we're caught. And then he began verse 7. <clears throat> Well, before I, before I go into verse 7, I just want to say just a little bit about the difficulty that these religious Jews had. You have to understand a little bit of what they were living out of. 
from about 50 years before the time of Jesus, something to began to be codified among Jewish men and women, the religious elite, called the Mishnah. And it took another, after the time of Jesus, another almost 200 years before it was finally codified. About 150 rabbis would come together and they would orchestrate these writings upon writings and it was precedent, not, not unlike our legal system. Laws being written on precedent. If you've ever taken any law courses, and it was one of the worst grades I ever made in all my college history at Rice, was a business law thing that I thought I could skate through, and there was no skating. It was one of the worst grades I ever made. But everything is based on precedent. So if you're going to make an argument, you argue a decision that's already been made prior to this decision, right? That's just basically the way our law works, based on precedent. Originally, hopefully, going back to the Constitution, and now there are big constitutional issues, what should we cling to our constitution, or does that, that need to be? Uh, does that need to evolve a little bit? And, and so they're constitutionalists and all that. But these were these were strict Mishnah guys. They paid attention to what the rabbis had written, and they thought, well, if eventually I may need to write some of this. And then it was broken down into some 63 subcategories when it was finally finished. And you've got to realize that they were all living out of a lot of this rabbinical writing that had already been done by the rabbis. Now, Jesus was primarily, almost exclusively teaching in reference to the Tanakh, or what we would call the Old Testament. It's an acronym for Torah, the T, and then the, and then the prophets, Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim, which are the other writings. And so Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K, which is the Tanakh, which he was teaching out of what we began to call the Old Testament. And they were always referencing the Mishnah or the writings of the writings of the precedents of the decisions made by these rabbis that were actually obscuring the message of the Tanakh and its original message, which was Jesus is coming and that he's going to be the king, he's going to be a suffering servant, he's going to have to die for you, and he's going to be the lamb. And, all, and, and yet they, all that was being obscured by their, well, by their religion. And so you can imagine that when he was with this leader of the Pharisees and, and things like this emerged, healing on the Sabbath or washing of hands or all the different things that they would confront Jesus about his disciples or eating with impure hands, what were they finding this out? Was, was the Tanakh really dealing with this in its core or was this more the, the evolving Mishnah that was being, was being driven in their minds? It becomes so absurd that it's hard to even really deal with. Jesus was teaching so differently that they were often looking at Jesus and saying, he's not like our teachers. He's one. It's like he's teaching with real authority. Why? Because he was teaching the living word of God, which was the Tanakh, and he was the word himself. Of course it was authority. And they were teaching off precedent and precedent and precedent, Something, again, that was obscuring the very message that Jesus was there to proclaim. But can you blame them? I just want to read one excerpt. John Dixon's book, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus, he recounts one section of the Mishnah, which just is called Yadayim, which is just dealing with hands, hand washing. And I want to read to you an excerpt from the Mishnah. Are you ready for this? And we're going to bring it up on the screen here. You know, talk about heavies. Heavy loads to put on someone's back. Are you ready? The hands are susceptible to spiritual, added our ad, uncleanness and are rendered clean up to the wrist. How so? If one poured the first water of two compulsory cleanings there up to the wrist and the second beyond the wrist and it went back to the hand, well, it's clean then. 
But if he poured out the first and the second point of water beyond the wrist and it went back to the hand, it's unclean. If he poured out the first water onto one hand and was reminded and poured out the second water onto both hands, then, well, they're unclean. But if he poured out the first water onto both hands and was reminded and poured out the second water onto one hand, his hand, which has been washed twice, it's clean. But if he poured out water onto one hand and rubbed it on the other, well, it's back to unclean. <clears throat> Yada yim. You say, well, you're, you're, being, you're, you're being very narrow, Jeff. You're being offensive to uh, Jewish people who, and writers of the Mishnah. Jesus condemned that because they missed out on the whole thing. I'm not into sacrifice. And you being, <laughs> is that really the point? What was the point of clean hands? What was he was trying? The law was given to try to keep Israel together as a people group. God under, I think God understood the micro, uh, microscopic world of germs and things way before Louis Pasteur and all that, and he helped keep them together by giving them certain ritual laws that kept them from just disappearing from the face of the face of the map before the seed came. But then all of a sudden, bad religion wants to take this. And, you know, what does that do? It gives them authority. Because who can figure it out? I, I, I typed this in. I read it. I reread it. And I finally just told people, I said, put it up on the screen. Because I don't even understand what it's saying. Maybe somebody else could come up here with a, we've got a few lawyers here. Maybe they can come up in here and help me figure out what that means. Does this reflect in any way the nature of God? Does that reflect? So when somebody looks and says religion, and they were to come across this writing about the, clean, the cleansing of hands, and they read that, and they go, okay, now that's God I like. Man, I'm walking the other way. If that's, if that's the God that you're talking about, does that reflect the nature of God in any way? Hosea 6, 6, I'm not into your sacrifice. Go learn what this means, Jesus says in Matthew 9 again. Go and learn, learn what this means. I desire mercy and compassion, mercy, compassion, and not your man-made religious sacrifices derived from writings upon writings and men, usually men, almost always men, trying to get control, trying to be in a position of honor, trying to look so that people have to look to me. You know, one of the things, one of the most scary things in my view of taking a job like this, and I don't consider it a job, but it's a calling, it's a privilege, is to come up here and realize that I am, you say teacher or pastor or whatever that means, I am merely a repository, should be only a repository of the teachings of Jesus, period. I don't give any of my own opinions on this. Like, this is my take on it. This is what I think. And yet, there are theological squabbles among things, and so at some point I have to say, this is my take on this, at least in my experience and having read what I've read, and then I have to and I have to give that out to you as daily bread on a Sunday morning. And it's challenging. It's incredibly, and it's a fearful task, quite frankly. Don't ever look at me and think that I've, I'm a great teacher or any kind of guru status. There's no, zero guru. There's one teacher. And that's why Jesus said, don't be called teacher. There's only one teacher. Now, of course, yeah, I don't think he's saying that for all times. Because if you go back into the Pauline uh, theology, it talks about, not many should want to be teachers. Of course, there are teachers that are going to come. But ultimately, in an ultimate sense, there's one teacher. His name is Jesus. And he died for you. I didn't. I'm a fellow journeyer. I'm, I'm kind of failing my way to success. And I, we're trying to get there. And yet, you're never going to see. You might see facets 
of Jesus, I hope, at, at times in me, but obviously you won't see all of Jesus in me. But I th- collectively, you can see a pretty good portrait of Jesus among a thriving, spirit-led community. In Luke 24, 27, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, notice Moses and the prophets, the Tanakh, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, not the rabbinical writings and the precedents and everything else. Also in John 5, he said, If you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me because Moses was writing about me. The Torah, the first five books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Jesus was always referencing the living and active Word of God. Does that make sense? So this is important that we lay this as a foundation. Now, back to verse 7. Back to verse 7. This is fascinating. It says, and he began speaking a parable. A parable just means to come alongside. A little story to come alongside a spiritual reality that's in the unseen realm to help you kind of begin to try to grasp what's happening in the unseen realm. That's all parables were. And he began to speak this parable to the invited guests when he noticed, notice that he's noticing. Jesus notices you. Some, for some people, that's terrifying. If you're living in sin, Jesus notices. Well, maybe he didn't forget. But he also notices when you bless him and when, and when you're in your you're in prayer and you're in for someone nobody else sees. And when you give and don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, or et cetera, et cetera. He, he notices. God, Jesus, notices. He noticed how they had been picking, picking out places of honor at the table. Shouldn't be doing that, don't we all? And he said, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, how shameful, the walk of shame. Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. The walk of shame. It's funny, this uh, last week, uh, I won't go into it, but through, through our elders and through our folks and our staff and through links and so, you know, we kind of like you as golf pro guy, golf pro pastor, not just pastor, pastor. So I took a little effort. I ended up qualifying for a tournament that I shouldn't have actually qualified for, but I actually did. And I went and I was in New Mexico this last week. And, uh, and I missed the cuts. There's 300 guys that come from all over the United States that had qualified, and then they have a first cut and then a second cut anyway. And then the top 35 play in the, the U.S. Uh, GA championship, PGA championship for seniors, which would be televised, and you play with the big wigs, right? So uh, I was there, and I missed the cut, and I was on the, on the bus going, trying to, from the hotel that we were at to try to get back. And, of course, you're, you see other cats that missed the cut too. And I sat down. It was a good. It was a good player. He's a great guy. He's just sitting across from me. I think he's from Ohio or something. And uh, I said, "The walk of shame." He goes. He goes. Yeah, the walk of shame. I mean, because you know, if somebody's leaving on Saturday, there's a walk of shame, right? Headed to the airport with. The, we all got our golf clubs and our PGA silly stuff on and all that. Walk of shame. And he's like, ah, I can't. And then he proceeded, as all golfers do, to begin to describe how he missed the cut by only one shot. And then when I. In an obligatory way, listen to the reason he missed the cut, and then I started in on my story of, 
And he was then obliged to realize how unfair it was that I had missed the cut based on this one great shot that I hit that turned into a double bogey. But anyway, you don't want the walk of shame is the point. You don't want to be ass. Well, give your place to this man. And in disgrace, you get on the shuttle bus back to the airport. But anyway, verse 10. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up here higher. Then you will have honor in sight of all those who are at the table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, at the core of this, this is a humility thing. Now, first of all, let me just say that I believe with all my heart Jesus is not trying to get us to a place where if I come next Sunday morning and everybody's fighting for the last three rows of the seats back up there and nobody's down front, I'm going to say, you missed the point of the parable. Let's start over again. This is not everybody scurrying to try to fight for the worst seats and the worst place anytime you go into any church at the Red Door event or any religious activity. Don't be fighting for that. That is really not the point. The point of this revolves around how they were picking out places of honor for themselves. You know, part of the human condition is that we feel insecure because we're sinners. We feel our alienation from God before we connect with him. We feel our alienation from other people because sin always mars relationships, doesn't it? And so, inevitably, we fail. We fail as fathers. We fail as grandfathers. We fail as husbands. We fail as wives. We fail as employees. We fail as employers. We fail as neighbors. We fail as uh, golf buddies. We fail as tennis partners. We, We fail everything. We just fail. And we feel this insecurity, which is dishonorable. And so, the natural knee jerk reaction is to pick out places of honor because we don't feel honorable, at least in part. I have to ask the question, and I've been asking myself this question for two weeks. Why was it that Jesus told this parable in this context, especially leading up to to this next? It lays a foundation. Bad religion, good religion. We have to change our worldview. It's not legalism. It's mercy and compassion. But it's also based in the fluidity and the beauty and the oiliness, if you will, that just lubricates everything of humility. And God knows that when we're constantly aware of trying to pick out places of honor for ourselves, that there is something that's not yet right. Now, you've got to realize that Jesus is not doing this to make our lives miserable so we become obscure and nobody notices us. Let me say that again. This sounds like some kind of masochistic kind of strange vibe here that Jesus is giving us. If you just take always the low place, because let me tell you something, there are people that can have a martyr syndrome and always take the low place, and it's actually more a place of pride than someone who might look for a place of honor in their lives. Are you following me? So this is not about that. It's really uncovering a heart condition that Jesus wants to get to the bottom of. Why? Because he wants you to flourish in life. If you're always concerned, and it's just a, it's a, it's the nature of fallenness to look for honor. I feel dishonorable, so I'm looking for honor. Honor me, honor me, honor me, honor me. Worship me, honor me. Look at me, please look at me. Honor me, and 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 Jesus is saying that's never going to lead to life. Even if you get the honor that you want, you'll become more insecure. 
See, Jesus is giving us a wisdom principle, a deep, deep understanding of how psychology, how he created the mind, that you're a created being, and he's given this deep, beautiful insight is to begin to practice when that urge overtakes you to seek a place of honor to not do it. And in doing so, you're going to be happier. You're going to be more uh, abundant. Life is going to flow into your life. You're going to feel more blessed. You're going to feel more resolved you're, uh, to, in relationships. And people are attracted to humble people. Most often, we're looking for a place of honor because we want people to like us. The paradox is that the people that are always looking for honor, people don't like them. And the more they go after it, the less they get of what they're actually looking for. Jesus is always, Jesus' teaching always leads to life. He's not sabotaging your party. Some people, even the New Testament talks about some people have naturally giftings or positions that, uh, that are naturally in the limelight more than others. And he's saying, as a community, we should always be lifting up those who have uh, a less, he calls it in the NASB, less seemliness. In other words, people that don't get that kind of honor. And I'm always fascinated with those people, the behind-the-scenes people, the people that are doing things that got here really early this morning that you won't see. And then I come bolting in here about 15 minutes before the time, and I... I, get, I receive this kind of honored position, and you tell me thanks for the message, and you leave. And I'm like, really, the work? I, the work was being done this week. Pastor Paul's down here, and Randy, and all the staff, and the uh, hospitality teams. They're giving their own time and setting all this up, paid or unpaid, or what, all this. And they deserve a lot more honor than I do, and, and, I, and yet I, I get a little bit more of that. But we have to be cautious, seeking honor. You know, one of the things, who's, who's heard of the toxic leader syndrome? Anybody ever had a boss that was just toxic? You know what probably happened? They tried to move in that position because they felt so insecure that they wanted to become a leader. And to be a leader, they know nobody really liked them. So now they've got to have an authoritarian kind of a response to a lack of followership by employees or whatever. And it just becomes toxic and people, well, people used to stay in those situations, but then COVID hits and everybody's like, I hate my job and I hate my boss. I'm out of here. It's amazing what happened. Some of those people are regretting that now, looking for jobs that they can't find. But you get the point. It's toxic leadership. Jesus is really noticing. Are you focused too much on the seen realm? This, this is a huge faith issue, by the way. May I just say that? If you want to say, okay, I'm not going to look for honor in my life, I'm going to trust that at the proper time, God will take me to a place of, of being noticed and maybe even receiving some honor. God will take me there if I don't seek it. But in the seeking of it, I'm still not ready to have it yet. You know, the greatest leaders are the most reluctant leaders. And that's why I think our politics today are so filled with, ugh, ugh. You know what I mean? Who did you vote for? It doesn't matter who you said you voted for in the last election. If you say one, the other one, I can't believe you voted. And then who did you vote? I can't believe you voted. You know, a lot of times when you see career politicians that work so hard and you know they're being driven by a desire to be honored, I wonder how much pain has been caused in the world by a guy like Putin. What, what's going on with Putin right now? He wants honor. He wants to be seen as the strong man. I I mean, we could sit here and talk about things forever and talk about the reason that he's trying to do what he's doing. 
But you've got to understand that in the end, he, he wants to be honored. Some of my friends uh, from Europe uh, I knew some kind of the oligarchs, and they were kind of high polluters in Russia, and they would say, I don't know if this is true. I shouldn't even say this. might have to edit this out. But, but they, they said uh, the traffic, had, this is maybe 15 years ago, was so, had gotten so bad in and around Moscow that, I mean, you would just be in standstill, couldn't move. All, it was just horrible. And then you'd have this express lane. And it was only for, like, Putin. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I was told. They'd go for, visit their friends. They'd be stuck, and then they'd see at about 200 kilometers per hour, whoosh, who's that? Well, it's Putin. I mean, looking for the place of honor, it's caused untold, catastrophic results in the world. And it can be women, but it's often men. Men looking for a place of honor causes catastrophe. Am I, am I looking for a place at honor at a wedding because I want to network, because I got to feel like I have to manipulate and coerce and work my way into a higher position so that I can get more money or status or, you know, people are driven by different things. Some people are just driven by the almighty dollar. Some people are driven by fame. Some people are driven by just security. Some people are driven by they just don't, you know, they want to check out and live off the grid. You know, people are motivated by all different kinds of things. But in the end, it takes a lot of faith to, take a, to have a practice of not seeking honor. And in doing so, guess what will probably happen? You'll probably be given some honor. And that's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Catch this. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, what does that mean? Of course, it's figurative language. But if I'm going to take this jacket and it's a humility and I'm going to put it on, how do you do that? You just, you, you have a thought in your head. You go, I'm not going to go down that road. I know I'm doing that so people will see me and honor me. And I'm choosing not to seek the place of honor here. It's just a practice because Jesus practiced it. If there was anybody who could stand up and pull back something and see Superman underneath ever that's ever walked the face of the planet... It was the God-man who took on human flesh, but he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took the form of a bond slave. Now, what does that mean? He had a right to all honor, and he knew one day it would be given him, but he chose to practice humility. He chose it. Every day, you choose it or you don't choose it, and you know when you haven't chose it, chosen it, and you know when you have chosen it. He said, humility to one another, for God is opposed to the proud. Why? It won't make you happy. Pride makes me happy. No, it doesn't. It makes me miserable, and it makes people around me miserable. And it constricts the very thing that I'm trying to do. I want to, I want to be effective in my life. I want people to love me. I, I want people to say, you've done something good with your life, so I have to trumpet that. No, you don't. Because he goes on to say, if it just stopped there, he gives grace to the humble. And then he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he what, may what? He may exalt you, and this is huge, at the proper time. There's a time. This is not about martyrdom and obscurity and you never... You always want to finish last, and if you play golf, always finish last in every tournament so nobody will notice you. This is not about that. You're missing the whole point. 
It won't make you happy unless God exalts you. And then in that moment, you're ready because you're reluctant to do it anyway. When you get to the point that only God deserves the honor and that you're not looking for it anymore, he actually might throw a little honor your way and give you a platform and, and well, Peter calls it exalting you. It just means so that you can be seen, so that your light can be seen. That's why we opened with that song. Let there be light. I cannot tell you, I, I, I'm responsible, not me, that, that sounds prideful, but I am, well, I'm partially responsible with two ministries here at Church of the Red Door and Links, and culture is everything and humility is everything. Everything. Because it is the foundation for which an organization that becomes effective, light-bearing, effective, and that's all ministry is, to be effective light-bearers. And when that happens, light can shine forth, but humility throws a big, wet blanket on it, and you can't see any light emanating. And I don't care how religious it looks, how good it looks, how many times you wash your little yadayim. Oh, it went down on the wrist and it came in. Now, what does that mean? I've got to read that again. And, uh, missing the whole point. Can you imagine reading that and trying to live that out and being joyful and saying, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, some sweat just came down. I'm unclean. I've got to go. I mean, it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous, and it, it obscures the truth of the revelation of Jesus. It obscures the truth. So... <clears throat> Are you always the person that needs the best seat in the house? Are you always the person? So I, now think about this. So I'm in New Mexico, and somewhere in between Albuquerque and Santa Fe, I don't know exactly where it was, uh, and I flew in, and I, my flight got delayed, and I had to change airlines, and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so I got there, and I got there late because my, I had to change airlines and all this kind of thing. And so by the time I checked in, there was all these other characters at this hotel, she basically looked at me and she goes, you're the very last one to check in. And I knew what that meant. So this hotel was a fantastic hotel. Uh, and, and it was, you had six, uh, six stories high. And the views, can we pull up the view? Yeah, there it is. So these are some of the views from the hotel, all right? But Mr. Cranford, you're one of the last. Now, remember... I'm going through this as I am working through those scoundrels looking for a place of honor and always have to have the best seat in the house and all that kind of thing. Can you believe those religious leaders? And I was kind of feeling this. And yeah, and then I'm checking in and I and I and so, but there's my view. No, I knew checking in last meant I was gonna be on the ground floor. <laughs> I was gonna be on the ground floor. This is true. I had to take these pictures because the Lord is showing me. Now, when I'm checking in, I thought, after the first night, I will go back. Some, clearly, somebody has to check out. And if they check out, I'll find, and I'll get a view that I can see that. Because I love to get up in the morning, you know, especially if I have maybe a late time or something like that. And I get in the Word, and I open this. And if I can see God's creation, you know how much I love God, looking at God's creation. And so, I'm th and so I was thinking, okay, tomorrow, and I won't unpack everything because then and I'll get some. But what I was really saying is I'll put some other scrub that comes in late, misses his flight, and he'll get this, and I'll get moved up, moving on up. I'll be George Jefferson, right? I'll be moving up to a, to a palace in the sky or whatever, you know? And, uh, and so, now, now go back to that picture. Go back to that picture because 
honestly, that's a fake cactus. Now, what I, what I fail to do, and the only reason that that is there is because that's the top of some other thing when there's air conditioners and all that kind of thing. See, I wanted to be up there. I wanted to be in one of those because that view was what you, something just, you just saw. I have a fake cactus. So I open in the morning, I'm on the bottom, and I open my, I open my deal, and you can see me taking the picture there. And, I, I don't, and there's a fake cactus. But then I looked out my window, and there was another fake cactus, and another fake cactus, and all the rooms on the bottom, they would put one fake cactus just outside your deal, in front of a deal. So you could have the Southwest vibe. I don't deserve that. And you know what the, the Lord said? Do you feel robbed? So now what, you, what you're telling me, I felt God and I were having this conversation. He was actually having the conversation. I was kind of listening. And so you want, you, you want to put somebody else in there. You want to put somebody else in this room because you don't deserve this. See, there's something, there's a heart condition there. It was revealing a heart condition in me. Somebody else deserves the fake cactus. I'm a, I'm a God worshiper. I want to see the create. So every day, somehow, this is true. I'd get up, and every morning I got up, and I missed two mornings at the end. But every morning I'd get up, and I'd actually go, I love that fake cactus. I actually fell in love with that fake cactus. So <laughs> it's a real strange thing. So in the end, Jesus is working, look, Jesus is working towards a goal of helping us understand our place in the created order. This is not just simply run for something, run for the low seat. That's not what we're really looking here. We're the creation, he's the creator. We function best, we function best. So I asked myself this question this week. I wonder if there was some psychological studies that have dealt with humility and what happens with the humble versus those who are always, and it didn't say seeking a place of honor. And I actually, so I, I found this uh, article in Psychology Today by uh, Dr. Carl Albrecht, and to my knowledge, not a believer at all, just what does the science say? Everybody don't know, what's the science say? say? And here were, here were his key points. Humility can be thought of as a liberation from our society's culturally imposed norms of me first thinking. I like that. Now, here's a secular person, a psychologist, saying it's liberating to not have to think about yourself first all the time. Wow. Is that true? Now, he went on, and yeah, in some ways, there's a golden rule to that. Buddhism and different things like that talk about. I mean, just observationally, it's kind of like Proverbs. Observationally, you can look at the way things work, and that's what this is. Humility does not mean... Being a doormat or a sucker, it simply means not putting oneself above or below others. <clears throat> the good way to develop humility is to pay attention to the competitive reflex in oneself. Humility is widely underrated in most Western cultures. It's also widely misunderstood. Maybe that's why it's so underrated. Again, a secular psychologist. Our popular media culture is saturated with themes of conflict and combat and conquest, and popular films feature cops chasing crooks and military fighting terrorists and lone avengers pursuing the all-evil doers. And we say we love peacemakers, but our heroes typically are warriors. As a society, we like our celebrities to be 
cheeky, to be self-important, and even a bit narcissistic. Little wonder that humble people seem a bit strange to us. Secular psychologist. This is as if they're following some syncopated life rhythm that a few people around them don't quite get. Syncopated simply meaning to diminish, to, to, uh, to, to bring everything together in one, to, to abbreviate something, to shrink it. It looks like, a, to, the humble life looks like a shrunken life. Like you're not enjoying all the world has their, all the world has to give. Live to the fullest. You only go around once. Do you see how humility in and of itself is one of the greatest faith acts you can engage in? Because you're saying, no, 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 no. There's another life after this one. I don't have to live my best life now. I can take the road of humility. And guess what might happen? I might then have a place of honor in the eternal realm Not that I'm even looking for it anymore. I just want to be near Jesus because I've come to find that he's a pretty good guy to do life with. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And I'm not going to read the rest of this other than to say this. This competitive reflex, he he, he just says, my my conception of humility is what you have when you give up certain self-aggrandizing thought patterns. I agree. Reflexes, behaviors. See, we do it without even realizing we're doing it. I need to be honored. 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 Jesus is saying, don't do that. It's just going to make you miserable. It's going to make people around you miserable. Be humble. Don't run from the spotlight if God gives you the spotlight. But by then, you won't care about it anymore. It's a real paradox. And then finally, I was reading uh, Nine Benefits of Being Humble in the Black Sheep Community. Humility is another form of giving to others. It is allowing others to feel powerful before us. I thought that was powerful. Humility is allowing others to feel powerful. You know, celebrities do it all the time. They look at somebody and they say, he can't suffer a fool. Humility suffers suffers a fool. It's allowing other people, when you should have honor, to appear powerful before you without you having to stomp on them and put them in their place. I love that. I mean, I hated it, but I loved it. Carrying out this act is rewarded in blessings because we are more blessed in giving than we are in receiving. Okay, and then finally, the, the, just the last thing, and this is just all fits together now because Jesus says what's true and undefiled religion, it's to visit orphans and widows. James said to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So just in closing, this last little portion of this before we get into Luke, the Luke 14 passage that I was referring to, it says, and he, uh, he says, when you have a luncheon or a dinner, and don't just invite your friends and brothers and your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, you, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the pastors, the lame, the blind, and, no, it didn't say pastors. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those who were reclined at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So they, they were so focused on their religiosity and their, this whole, and then Jesus is saying, just, just do this. In terms of practice, 
don't always have to be with the biggest celebrity, with the biggest famous person. With the big, there's some extraordinary people out there. And that's, this can mean the literal lame, the blind, the poor. It can also mean the figurative. I mean, we have a lot of lame, blind, and poor people here, spiritually speaking, in this valley. Befriend them. Love them. Don't be worried about what religious people will say. He's, he's with tax collectors and sinners. Don't worry about all that. Go with people that can't repay you. Because if you're always looking for repayment in this life, what you're essentially saying is, I don't trust the Lord to provide. And I'm always thinking about the seen realm and not the unseen realm. And let me just be clear in closing. This is it. This will, this will functionally disable you from advancing the kingdom with your giftings if you miss this message. Are you following me? You will be functionally crippled if you're into bad religion and legalism and you're into looking for honor. Following Jesus gives, gives you an honorable life. But you cannot follow Jesus and imagine you can cling to your desire to be honored. You cannot. Let's just settle that. You'll be falsely accused. You'll be persecuted. You'll be ostracized. And Jesus told us that. So... I guess in the end, we just, we just want to hear the Lord speak, right? I mean, we, wanna, we want this dynamic, beautiful, Lord, show me, speak to me, show me areas that I'm always seeking honor, and, and let me just practice not seeking it. And then if you give it to me, I'm not going to run from it. You'll give me a platform, and I'll shine your light, not mine, but I'll shine the light that you give me. But I need to hear you speak. Now, I play this, and we've played it a number of times, and you always love this song because it's called Speak. We want to hear the Lord speak, and then Pastor Paul will come up and close us in prayer, and then hang around. There's a lot of orange juice out there. I don't know why, but there is a lot. There is a lot. I'm, in fact, I got a text while I was back in the back Florida call.